Hello, everybody. Welcome to Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. This is Frank Pelicone. You are listening to episode 166, and tonight we start covering all of the top movies of the respective years going back to 50, 40, 30, and 20 years. To me, it's the most wonderful time of the year, and tonight we're covering the top five films of 1972. So, Frank, I realized right before we got on that this is our fourth year of doing this little exercise where I have you go through and determine what your top five movies are of these years which is pretty crazy um that we've gotten this far um it is pretty crazy yeah um i guess we might have started (laughs) our first year like yeah it was towards the end of our first year you had the idea that we should do it and then we just started doing it and it's become a an annual tradition yeah yeah and then the unlike any other (laughs) except probably like many i don't know right right um so 72 we talked a little bit offline what a what a damn incredible year for movies yeah uh, this year Um, very um very satisfying watching all five of these movies again yeah um yeah it's 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 really interesting looking ahead at like how things change from 72 to 82 to 92 and then 2002 in terms of just the types of films that come out and um that's one of the things i always like about this is like this like broad spectrum of film and you definitely see a lot of new hollywood um creeping into things in 72 here um out of the things we're gonna talk about tonight um But a good mix, um, like, you know, several, like every director is just like a titan of film um, in one way or another, really. Um, so I want to jump into them, but was there anything else that almost made your list? Um, yeah, there was um, a few. This is actually the shortest um, short list out of all of the uh, the years that we're going to do over the next month. Um, there's a, a Fassbender movie called um the bitter tears of petra von kant that i thought about putting on there that i really like um but i didn't know what to take off um discreet charm is 72 discreet charm of the bourgeoisie um which i felt like we did justice to in our bunuel episode and i didn't really know what else we could say about it yep um and then solaris is 72 and i kind of wanted to put solaris on there just to give some more representation um uh, to what's his name? Um, Perkowski. Yeah, cause, yeah. Um, but I don't know. I, I'm not the biggest fan of Solaris. Like, I've it's a beautiful movie. It just it feels too long to me. And Stalker is so much better. I think that. Yes. Yeah. And actually, some of his other stuff too, like um, shit, The Mirror, and there's another one that I saw last year for the first time that I thought was pretty amazing, but. Mm. Solaris is still a good movie and worth watching if you're a fan of Chris, because whatever you say his name, um, yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, anyway. So I think the five that we chose are, in my opinion, like I think it's interesting to. I think they all fill different niches, and I think they're all really like worth talking about. So. Yeah. Um 
hopefully people can't hear you getting hearing your voice has like sent all the cats and the dog like um uh like before we got on like uh scurrying around and all excited because um uh my wife is away um for the past like two days so it's like any any voice um is like you know they think there's activity going on so like now like they're all a scurry and now one cat is like scratching the wall for some reason so hopefully you can't hear that um <clears throat> but you might I can't hear, hear it so might hear dogs barking and cats doing stupid shit like in the background um because i have no privacy tonight but <clears throat> all right so let's go ahead and jump in the number five uh number five on your list is the ruling class directed by peter medak it stars peter o'toole alistair sim harry andrews arthur lowe and coral brown it has an 83 percent from critics and 85 percent from audiences on rotten tomatoes you want to tell us a little bit about this one and how it ended up making the list so this is a movie that i found in my teens i think and i had never heard anything about it um kind of caught me off guard and i really enjoyed it um it's almost a british comedy of manners kind of thing but sort of similar in tone to something like um kind hearts and coronets in some ways hmm. um but the premise is there's this uh wealthy wealthy british family um the gurneys who uh, are currently led by the 13th earl of gurney who's a member of the house of lords um a judge for a long time but completely crazy where one of his predilections is to dress up in a tutu in his underwear and hang himself on a silk noose um so it ends up going awry and he ends up killing himself and his family wants to kind of just immediately move in and take over um the gurney family his 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 brother i guess is what it is um is the guy that's like the main antagonist sort of of the movie um, but it turns out that he has a living son, um, Jack Gurney, who is committed to a mental institution because he thinks he's God. Um, so Jack Gurney comes back into the house and immediately the um, the brother, his son, his wife um, concoct this plot where they're going to get him to sire an heir to the gurney family and then get him committed to an insane asylum um and the jack character is played by peter o'toole um it's a it's a weird mix i guess kind of between almost like frankenfurter from rocky horror sort of is um you kind of feel like that sort of impression mixed with um something out of hair maybe uh the movie is a semi-musical i guess um they break out in song and dance routine several times in the movie um but jack is despite being a paranoid schizophrenic i think it's how they describe him or a delusional schizophrenic um a really decent person who just genuinely wants to like love people and treat people with respect but doesn't ever want to be called by his birth name um so the plan is concocted that uh, Jack thinks that he's married to or he's in love with this woman that was a famous French actress from this movie, um, which is obviously not true. So um, his uncle, um, 
Charles Gurney um, has this mistress that he gets to come in and pretend to be this woman in order to sort of trick Jack into marrying her so she can get pregnant. But what ends up happening is everybody falls in love with Jack kind of because he's such like a, a good person and just genuinely like enjoyable to be around. And Charles is just this piece of shit who's kind of obsessed with power and money. Um, but there's a psychiatrist who is Jack's psychiatrist who feels like he can cure Jack. So he brings this other schizophrenic, um, who's called the, is it the electric God? I think is what his name is or the, Oh, what was, what, what did they call him? Um, I'm sorry. I can't remember. Like, yeah, what? I can't remember exactly. But anyway, oh, the, the like, high voltage Messiah, the high voltage Messiah. <laughs> so this guy that's like basically right. made to look like, um, Nikolai Tesla who comes in and is sort of like the anti Jack God, where he's more about destruction and vengeance and righteousness. Um, and he shoots electricity at Jack and the electroshock basically causes him to seemingly change into a normal person and recognize himself as Jack. But what you find out is that he thinks that he's now Jack the Ripper. Um, so then the movie takes a turn where he's all of a sudden accepted and loved by high society because he has all these um, really kind of like dark ideals about how things should be and about punishment and um punishment of the lower classes and harsh punishment for any like perceived slight of the slight of the crown and um in the end he ends up murdering uh his aunt his uncle his aunt um his wife um he causes his uncle to have a heart attack and the last scene in the movie is his child um repeating the same lines as he i'm jack from earlier in the movie um sort of implying that he has the same like hereditary mental illness as his father so it's an interesting movie to watch because it's it's very british and there's a lot of things in it that are direct um satire on british society and especially the idea and this is you know 1972 so long before anonymous or um you know the 99 percent or whatever but basically focused on the idea that what is it one percent of or five percent of british citizens control like 95 percent of british mm -hmm. money and mm -hmm. um jesus jack is very much opposed to the idea of materialism and using his money and then um jack the ripper jack is to the complete opposite where he's very much um a true member of like British upper class society who wants to keep the rich rich and keep the poor down. Um, so I think the satire there mostly is about, and I'm not, a, I'm not hugely knowledgeable on British, like whatever, like social situations in the early seventies. Same. Yeah. Um, but my guess would be that there's probably a lot of stuff about the welfare state. I mean, I know that um, the dole, um, I think is kind of from around this time and maybe I'm completely wrong about that, but um, the idea that the butler, like the guy that's the one true friend of Jack the entire time is a, a Bolshevik um, and believes in public assistance and giving power and money to everyone, like spreading the wealth mm -hmm. um, and makes jokes about like how he was on, um, you know, whatever public medi medical aid and I don't know. So 
it's also i think a criticism of just how because you know in in the late 70s and early 80s there's a lot of stuff in british politics where homosexuality was still criminalized uh, there's a lot of open animosity towards immigrants because there was a large immigrant population um, especially from uh, the middle east and like pakistan through the middle of like the 70s and 80s in india um, there was a lot of inherent racism towards those things so the idea that a person who emulates christ which is the core of um you know the the royal church or whatever is somebody that's like seen with scorn and derision but a guy that emulates one of the worst killers in british history right is a guy that's met with praise and um, adulation and the funny there, there's a really great scene towards the end um where jack once he's been kind of changed into his um, ripper persona is going to stand before the house of lords to be sworn in as an actual lord of, of britain and listens to these old men give these speeches basically about kind of like almost like ebenezer scrooge type speeches where you know reduce the surplus population and hold people accountable for blasphemy and obscenity and and he stands up and gives this ridiculous almost like biblical speech about basically killing like people that right. don't yeah uh, how 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 heartened he is by the fact that everyone is into the idea of hanging and flaying and mm -hmm. um whipping people that get out of line and when you see it from jack's perspective everyone in the audience is a corpse so it's just this room full of like cobweb strewn um skeletal corpses basically and it's a, it's a really great visual yeah um, and 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 you don't want to overlook the idea now that he's no longer christ um and now he's Jack the Ripper, or whatever. That they're all singing in uh, Parliament um, onwards. Oh, onward onward Christian right. soldiers, um, exactly. Yeah. Um, but Peter O'Toole's fantastic in it. Um, William Mervin, who plays St. Charles, is a really great performance. Um, the guy that plays Dinsdale, James Villers, is another. Like I really like that performance a lot. The kind of affable goof who's like taken in by Jack once he becomes the Ripper character but also is very protective of Jack when he's still the Jesus character, just like a decent guy that's kind of moved away from his father's um, sort of like petty hatred. Mm -hmm. um, great, amazing performance by Alistair Sim. Um, and I was wondering when I was watching, so Alistair Sim, who um, to me is most known from uh, playing Scrooge in uh, the 52 version of Christmas Carol, whatever that year that movie is. Mm -hmm. Um plays a bishop who is the brother of um charles gurney and who gurney uses to perform the sham well not a sham wedding it's a legit wedding but this wedding between jack is jesus and this woman that's um pretending to be a carolyn seymour character who's pretending to be this french um movie character and when i was watching alistair sim do this performance i was wondering if it was an influence on the um, reverend character in a princess bride mm. um, because the mannerisms and the body language um, very similar and kind of the foggy, like almost senile aspect of the character. Right. Um, a lot of really good imagery in this movie. Um it's directed by uh, the guy that directed the changeling, 
um, Peter Medak, which is interesting because such dissimilar movies, but you know, we, we both really love the changeling and it's just kind of interesting to see um, this dark satire, which is sort of the opposite in terms of tone and whatever, but um, yeah, just, it's, it, it's a fun movie. I think it's a movie that even though it's on Criterion and everything, I think it's a movie that not a lot of people talk about. And um, even though it's a little too long, like maybe 20 minutes too long, I find it to be still like really entertaining throughout. And I think it's definitely worth watching. Um, so yeah that's it yeah, that's rolling yeah the run the runtime was a little intimidating i guess um but i it, it often flows fairly well like in terms of pacing where it's like you don't really notice it all that much and um i thought it was a really intriguing movie i had never heard of it before not like once now maybe you might have mentioned it to me in passing at some point but it's like i I had never seen it. I didn't know anything about it really. And um so I went into it pretty pretty cold and pretty blind about any any of what it was and knowing nothing about it, I was fairly taken in, um, despite the oddity of the opening. Um and you know, not all the humor hits with me, but enough hit with me that I thought it was pretty funny for the first, you know, like hour, hour and a half or so. And but the the turn that it makes, um yeah, and I saw someone in reviews refer to it as becoming like a like a hammer horror film, like in like the last forty five minutes or so. And um, that seems there there's an element of that I definitely get. Like uh, the the film style changes, um, and the the stuff when he becomes Jack the Ripper, while funny <laughs> in a satiric way, is pretty fucking disturbing. And yes. I was I tried to get a little bit of insight into the Britishness of it because I know there's stuff I was missing um, from a colleague of mine who um, has for a long time been married to a Brit um, and she had actually never seen it before. So I couldn't get any like, you know, insight into like the the political stuff. But um, I don't think you really need it at all. I mean, I think if you follow any kind of politics, you can kind of get like where it's coming sure. from. And it actually, sadly, uh, 50 years later, still works pretty well um, in yeah. terms of its overall grand um, criticisms, um, uh, particularly in this country right now. <laughs> like, it works pretty well, like, in terms of, you know, uh, privilege and, you know, people, like, you know, uh, things being passed down from one person to another through uh, wealth and how those people still control things, like the religious criticism of the, um, that, that's in it. Um you know, uh, the anti-LGBTQ, um, like, you know, sure. stuff that's going on. Like, it somehow, 50 years later, it all still kind of fits in some ways, uh, sadly. And um, so I think, oddly enough, uh, having never seen it, it felt kind of just as relevant um, today to me as it did um, as it did probably then. Um, yeah. There's some really great scenes when Jack is the Ripper and he's murdering people but fantasizing that he's on the um whatever the streets of london in the 1800s like stabbing these people that are really well done um interesting comparison too because we just talked about uh ah shit why is it i can't remember anything mm -hmm. the um jack the ripper movie from uh, 79 um shit the freaking bob clark 
Sherlock Holmes movie. Oh, um, oh, damn it! Now you got you passed it on to me, Frank. Right. Um, I can't. Anyway, that movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all I can think of is the seventh seven percent solution, right. which is not not it. Um, I just have kind hearts and coronets in my head. That's oh, like, murder, mur, murder by decree. Yes, that's it. Um, so it's interesting to see the comparison between those two, um, just in terms of the way that the Ripper character is filmed. But it's almost like, and it's maybe a little too early for this, but they're almost channeling Bowie in some ways. I think um, with, that with slick the way, back hair and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, with the yeah. way that he looks, and yeah, and this would have been pre um, Thin White Duke, so. Mm-hmm by several years but then maybe you could say that maybe that's something that bowie was inspired by in terms of um because he is the duke the duke of gurney so who Mm -hmm. knows like maybe there's some some influence on the other direction there but yeah just an an entertaining movie um i mean we just spoiled the whole thing but like it kind of pretty surprising the first time you watch it um and a really really great performance by o'toole who um genuinely i I think maybe kind of almost a forgotten actor in the modern age uh, just because of when he was acting and what he was in, but you know, really, really good performance there. So yeah, agree. Um, yeah, no, definitely a movie. I wish I knew a little bit more about the time period and I wish I knew a little bit more about just British film in general. Cause I think there's a lot of stuff going on that I probably missed in it, but um well, they have they they have that great line where the police officer has come in to investigate the murder of the aunt, and he says that Jack is the the perfect example of the noblesse oblige or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, the guy is just a psychopath that's completely detached from anything that's happening and um, unconcerned about like completely detached from humanity, even. And unconcerned about like the well-being or lives of anyone around them, and that's what they find as being the perfect example of that British um, stiff upper lip, you know. So anyway, yeah. The the other thing I do find interesting too is this idea that it's like almost like the the lesson in some ways is um, if they're if they're harmless and crazy, it's just kind of leave them alone, like <laughs> because it's it's only through intervention. Um, yeah that they like turn him into and that's another interesting thing kind of about it is like does does like the shock therapy turn him evil or does it turn him into the true heir of oh yeah yeah he becomes the true earl of gurney at that right point. right um the other thing i wanted to ask you is the whole he has that line in it um pretty early on about like uh uh, when I when I I find when I talk to God, I'm talking to myself. Do you know if that's the origin of that? Because I've heard that in my lifetime um, used, but I didn't know if that's an older thing or not. If you, yeah, know. I don't know. Um, I would imagine it's the first time that I had heard it, but I mean, I saw this movie for the first time. I don't know, thirty years ago, maybe. So yeah, yeah. A lot of the stuff is lost in the fog of age. <laughs> sure, I suppose so. Um, I guess there is some slight thematic link here. So, uh, number four on your list is John Borman's Deliverance. It stars John Voight, Burt Reynolds, Ned Beatty, and Ronnie Cox. It has an 89% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and an 82% from audiences. So, you want to tell us a little about this movie and uh, why it made the list? 
Uh, this is another movie, and I, I probably saw these movies, honestly, pretty close to each other for the first time. Um, another movie that was a big favorite of mine from when I was a kid. Um, I think that... I, I think that most of... This movie and the second movie are probably the most recognizable mm-hmm. and the most heavily quoted. Um, but Deliverance is the story of this group of four acquaintances who are going on a trip down a river in um shit where are they in georgia right georgia because they're coming from atlanta mm-hmm. so it's this river that is going to be uh dammed and will cause this entire valley to flood and so the burt reynolds character is this um macho like uh yuppie come naturalist who kind of believes in the idea that you know you got to conquer nature and he hunts and he fishes and he's all about like taking this trip down these dangerous rapids to go from um, the mouth of the river down to Aintree, uh, Georgia, where um, they can get back in their cars and drive back to civilization. But so they can kind of see this sort of forest primeval one last time before the intervention of man, like kind of um, washes it away. Like both like literally and metaphorically. Mm-hmm. Um, really famous scenes in this movie so this is where dueling banjos really i guess gained its popularity and where the idea that whenever you see someone who's kind of maybe a hillbilly or a redneck you know or um in a less like financially stable area in the rural part of the country um where people do the um and also so they the four of them go down the river um they sort of run afoul of the locals early because Reynolds is so brash and the Ned Beatty character is like kind of a prick too and making fun of people openly. Um, Voight is cool and kind of a middleman between things, but more on the side of like peace and just letting people be. Um, but still kind of on the same side as the Burt Reynolds character because you get the impression that they're the actual like two friends in the group that are um directly related and then the um ronnie cox character who's very much like into peace and kind of like a hippie sort of um with his acoustic guitar and his desire to kind of just like be peaceful about things so they're taking their trip down the river um at one point uh ned Beatty and um, john voigt gets separated from the other two um they pull off on the side so Beatty can piss basically and uh, run into two bootleggers really like people that are kind of trying to protect us still um and Ned Beatty gets raped uh it's the famous squeal like a pig uh scene um John Voight is almost raped with the you got a pretty mouth city boy which is also another um oft-repeated line from the movie uh burt reynolds kills one of them and the other one gets driven off um which ronnie cox is horrified by that says they need to go find police and report it and burt reynolds convinces everyone not to do that because he's you know says that the law is definitely going to be on the side of these people anyway and there's no way we get a fair trial um so they continue down the river and ronnie cox at one point who's not wearing his life vest anymore um 
totters and falls out of the boat and disappears into the rapids. And Burt Reynolds convinces the other two that there was a shot fired. And it was the man that ran away from earlier that killed Ronnie Cox. Um, so then there's this really like tense scene with Voight having to, because Reynolds has broken his leg at this point after Ronnie Cox has fallen out of the canoe or kayak or whatever the fuck, mm-hmm. um, where Reynolds has his leg broken and John Voight, who's this generally like civilized and peaceful guy that, and I don't think they ever say this, but I get the impression that John Voight is like an English teacher or something just from like his mannerisms and his pipe smoking and his calmness or whatever. I got the impression he's a teacher. Yeah. Um, so Voight has to climb up on top of this like rock face um, because Reynolds has convinced them that there's the man is up there and has, has shot the Ronnie Cox character, Drew. Um, and Voight ends up having to kill the man by shooting him with a, a compound bow. Um, and then they dispose of the body and they end up going back down to where their cars are and there's a police inquiry, but they can't prove anything. Um, you find out that the deputy of the town his brother-in-law was missing um one of the greatest things about deliverance and i've never read the book so i don't know if this is the same and i know that that, um what's his name the guy that wrote the original novel uh james dickey was not happy with um borman's adaptation of his his novel but one of the greatest things to say the the least (laughs) right yeah punched him in the face (laughs) right one of the greatest things about the movie, in my opinion, is that there's no easy answer as to what happened. Um, so the scene where Ronnie Cox dies, we, my, my friends and I watched that scene a dozen times at least one afternoon, um, running the sound through his stereo and changing from left channel to right channel Mm. to try and listen for the gunshot because when they find the body he has a hole in his head that they sort of like rationalize to each other is from the gunshot but right before he falls out of the canoe you see him from the side where the um assailant would have been and there's no like bullet wound to his head or anything he just seemingly just like collapses Mm -hmm. and he kind of goes into a fugue state and sort of falls out of the thing so yeah there is the slump kind of of a of somebody who was shot a little bit to me because i then yeah so we always like thought that and Mm -hmm. i so i watched the scene probably five or six times when i watched this movie i kept rewinding it Mm -hmm. watching it listening there's a couple of sounds that are like slap noises but they're concurrent with like the canoes going over like a rapid and then like coming back down like hard against the water Mm -hmm. i don't think he's ever shot i think he's just so distraught over the idea of them of him basically being an accessory to murder and then like getting away with murder that he can't reconcile you know his his pacifist beliefs with it and he just basically commits suicide um not by proxy but incidental suicide or however you want to call it um yeah i mean i i think i I think that's the common interpretation of it is that like he probably probably is killing himself and they want to think that he was shot because it they would have to wrestle with the guilt of basically leading him into killing himself because he can't deal with it so it's easier for them to think that he was shot 
um would it be the psychological motivation for it the other really interesting thing about that too is that the man that john void ends up killing and so this is another thing that was um common among us when we were because i was really into this movie when i was like 15 or 16 years old mm -hmm. to try and watch the scene over and over was to figure out if the man that John Voight kills is the same man that was trying to rape him earlier in the movie. And the way that Borman films it, it's really difficult to see that mm -hmm. from because he's shot with the sun behind him and he's not wearing a hat, whereas the character in the earlier scene is wearing a hat. It's different clothes. Mm -hmm. um, they don't really ever give you a very clear direct shot of his face after he's killed. Um, you kind of just see him in profile or like like three-quarter profile um so it's pretty fascinating um but then it's it's the same actor so it's it's the same character um but it's fascinating the way that it's filmed because i guess you know even in 1993 or whatever like you didn't have the internet where you could look up like what did this actor play you just had sure. to kind of like sort of interpret it for yourself so yep um it's a really interesting look at the idea of um, number one, I think sort of a slight condemnation of this back to nature, um, because this is a time when, uh, country music was gaining a lot of popularity. People were, and we talked about this when we talked about, um, Stepford Wives too, because it's the same idea of the idea of like man growing tired of urban life and wanting to go back to, um, nature, but then not really having any respect for, nature itself for the people that live there just kind of wanting to still be like the lord of the manor so to speak like whenever they go into anywhere and not really having any respect um yeah so that's it's that's a really like central part of it and then the idea of i guess more or less what's justifiable like what what is a justifiable reaction to a terrible action you know and um, it's really portrayed well without being like sanctimonious or preachy mm -hmm. in the discussion between um, Cox and um, Cox being one end of the spectrum and then Reynolds being the other end of the spectrum um, and Cox being like hysterical and distraught and rightly so because he just witnessed a murder sure. and Reynolds being like unctuous and um, kind of like subtly bullying everybody else just into following his his way of thinking um and then Beatty being 100 percent fueled by the idea that he just you know was sodomized right um and Voight kind of being the character in the middle that has to bring everything together mm -hmm. and ultimately sides you know even though he doesn't it doesn't it's not a, autom immediately apparent that he's siding with his own anger and discomfort i mean that's exactly what's happening so sure um, one of the things I love the most about this movie, and this is something I forgot to mention in the ruling class, um, although the ruling class is a little different in terms of the way it's filmed because it's very British. Um, so it, there's a lot of like washed out color. It's not like super like saturated. Um, these movies are fucking beautiful to watch. And mm -hmm. this movie in particular, the way that Borman captures the, the majesty of nature um, the rapids the cliffs the woods uh, the kind of juxtaposition of 
the brutalness of the river when it's on the rapids to the calmness of the river when it's just like a gentle flow um the way that he films the men in terms of their interactions with each other how he frames them against um a lot of times in profile or like sort of like long medium shots with them like in opposition of each other um, because again the only people that are really friends here are all connected through the john void character like they're not friends outside of that um void is the one that knows um what's his name the the ned Beatty character who's an insurance salesman voice the one that's friends with the Burt reynolds character voice one that's friends with the ronnie cox character so he's the one that's kind of brought them all together mm-hmm. and ultimately um you know has to choose between what side to take and who to kind of let live almost and basically kills ronnie cox and then has the the line at the end like oh yeah i'll make sure that his family's taken care of even though it's basically his fault that the dude is dead sure um and his fault that like really i guess that everyone is dead in a lot of ways like even though reynolds is a catalyst for that it's it's void who's involved in all of those situations and kind of the guy that's sort of made to be the protagonist of the movie in a lot of ways and definitely portrayed as the most likable character so yeah it's an interesting movie i have i i haven't watched this since i was a teenager this is the first time in a long time although it certainly leaves an impression on you at a young age i think to where it's like i knew what happens in this movie i didn't need to be like retold but watching it is something different and so i i kind of went in with a lot of fresh eyes on this and i was trying to figure out what the hell is this movie about and um and then it's like i so i put I, i've actually put a lot of thought in the into the movie um, particularly after I read Ebert's criticism, because he gave it two and a half stars. He was like one of like the outliers of the time, like that didn't really like it that much. And a lot of it was because not only his like early stance against violence and stuff, which he kind of changed his tune on a little bit, but um, he um, he also just didn't see like ultimately what is, what is the point of this like movie like in the end. And it made me think because it's like, is this siding with the um john voight character like at all like is is is, are his actions correct and is the movie taking a position on that and i don't think ultimately it is because by the very end it's obvious he's traumatized by it by waking up in cold sweats in bed um and so it's like obviously this is something that has harmed him psychologically emotionally in some way at the end so it's not something that necessarily like so i don't think it's necessarily taking a side i think that it's like trying to be a little bit ambiguous the only thought that i had on this honestly the more and i i tried to find criticism like scholarly criticism of this and there's some out there but a lot of it goes into other areas is this a war movie like is this like a a movie that is actually about dealing with people who have been through trauma in some sort of combat and what they experience coming back to some degree uh and i don't know the answer to that it's just i i kept thinking about the idea of the woods 
um the iowa's platoon aspect of like their little group um being sent out like you know um drafted in some ways like you know and it's like you have the buffoon you have the hippie you have like the one who's really into it you got like the you know the the just normal guy whose last name is gentry by the way um and it's like and like here's this like situation where they end up in combat and yeah like the normal guy the most normal out of all of them who's not really a dick and is like you know um is like becomes your protagonist and then it's like it's all over and so i i I didn't know if this was like a parallel an analogy for like the idea of combat and then coming back from returning from combat in some ways so i didn't i didn't take it like that i definitely saw it as a condemnation of um again like the the very haughty um self-centered idea of i'm just gonna go back and be in nature now sure Um, because that like you know you got you got john denver you got kenny rogers you got um, Arlo Guthrie around this time, like people are really into like country music. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw it when in, and this is a ridiculous freaking comparison, but you watch something like Race with the Devil. I mean, it's the same idea, right? It's these people that are trying mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. just get away, and we're going to go camping, and but they have all their modern accoutrements or whatever, and you know they're not leaving anything behind or coming in to a position where they're respecting what they're around. Um, so I think the John Voight character is actually the villain in a lot of ways because Burt Reynolds character just is what he is. But when John Voight wakes up in a cold sweat, it's not PTSD. It's fear of being caught. Like it's fear of losing the comfortable life he has and having to own this murder that they committed because he's not a, he's not afraid of it's not him like being haunted by guilt or anything it's him being haunted by the fact that that water is not gonna do what they thought it was gonna do and cover their sins you know yeah i i I didn't take it i'll just say this i didn't take it as being uh having guilt i took it as being just affected by the experience not so much guilt um of being in the situation Um, yeah i i i think he's fine with what they did i don't think he's affected by what they did or even the death of his friend, I think he's affected by the idea of being caught and being discovered. And I think that that's the whole time. So there's an early scene that I think is kind of comparable. And I, I sort of feel like supports what I'm saying in that Burt Reynolds is being a complete asshole and is driving really fast and cutting off the locals and just generally making an ass of himself. And Voight is verbally admonishing him while physically smiling and wide-eyed and like leaning forward, like into the um, into the dash of the you know the the Bronco or whatever. So he's a guy that pretends to have certain ideals and standards, but in reality, it's just as easy to slip into. Yeah, he's certainly titillated by the action. Right, like, and 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 by like the way they're he like some of them are treating the locals and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean this guy with his patches on his jacket and his his pipe and his friggin' Gilligan hat out in the middle of the you know, yeah, yeah, the Georgia woods and is, 
I don't know. I I just I I think it's really I I think it's the most interesting character in the movie, and I think it's definitely the character that is meant to, um, really represent like the choice that you would make. Like he's your your proxy as the viewer. Oh, greed. Yeah. In that sense, and sort of a condemnation of the fact that sort of the idea is that most viewers, like most people, would you know push the body of the the hillbilly and their friend aside in order just to go back and live their life and not have to ever own up to what they've done so yeah that's interesting that i mean i i really don't know how, other than slight like interpretation i really don't know how much we're disagreeing like on like the reading of like uh, of the character um i don't think he's a he's a role model and i don't think the movie is um you know but i do think yes he's the proxy and i i still could i still see like the possibility of them going into a place that they don't know being an analogy for the for vietnam um i mean entirely possible so i but i think what's interesting about it is that the movie leaves it open that we can even have this discussion yeah 50 years later in just like the dentures and the toothlessness and like right. that that question you had in the 90s and it's like and then today we're still like able to discuss like how this film should be read um actually a- after watching it i was i really enjoyed watching the movie again all, after all these years and and now it's like and i and i thought it was I, I knew it was an important film but uh yeah the fact that we can still have this discussion uh maybe even elevates it more in my mind of its importance i wonder too and I can see the whole war analogy point, like point that you're making, and now that could be interpreted. I I think that '72 is a little too close to Vietnam to really have. Although maybe that's why you have to I, hide it. In, I que- I question that as well. Yeah, but so what if it's not like a Christ analogy, but told from the perspective of Judas? You know what I mean? Like, because in a lot of ways, like void is the one that you know is the closest to him and betrays him like he's the one that for the price of his own sound sound mind and well-being and you know the possibility of going back to his family is willing to immediately betray this guy that mm-hmm. the only reason he's there is because of the john boy character so mm-hmm. um and there's there's the idea too that if he was shot if he's shot in his side it also has a a comp to you know the spear in jesus's side on the cross or whatever i mean there's a lot of small things that you could say and that you know that that he willingly sacrificed himself because if they get back to society you know um drew's not going to be able to hold it in or not tell so he's basically letting himself like die for the greater good of the other three because they've made their choice so who knows i don't know yeah yeah i actually just thought of that now i never even thought of that right before that i hadn't hadn't thought of that but it makes sense, you know, just because of how I don't know, agreeable and caring he is about the feelings of other people. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, great movie. Um, yeah. one of my favorite movies from my teenage years, and I really enjoyed watching it again this time. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, definitely worth watching it again if you haven't seen it in a long time. 
All right. So number three on your list is Cries and Whispers, directed by Ingmar Bergman. It stars Liv Allman, Harriet Anderson, and Ingrid Thulin. It has a 94% from critics and a 90% from audiences on Rotten Tomatoes. So you want to tell us a little bit about this one and uh, why I made the list? So I made the list because this is Bergman. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, there's some later, but I mean, again, I haven't seen his entire filmography. And at this point, I'm just going to let you tell me what to watch. And then maybe someday I'll fill in the gaps. But this is one of his later efforts. Uh, and um, a lot of those aren't usually very well received, are they? Um, mm, among his later stuff sometimes. Like August Sonata is later, and that's pretty well received. Um, Fanny and Alexander. And Fanny and Alexander, right. Yeah pretty well received and that was his last film is that right Fanny, Fanny Alexander mm, maybe it was a TV series and then there's the film right, version right, of it yeah um but I mean that certainly towards the tail end of his career I don't think he was respected as highly as he was early on as it it's the same thing that happened to Kurosawa you know I mean people mm-hmm. just he was a guy that had been directing movies for shit 30 years at this point um, and I think that people maybe just didn't appreciate like what they had in him, um, which is crazy because if you watch this movie, like it's really fucking masterful and it's actually probably the closest thing to a horror movie on this list in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I wonder too, like, uh, as you talk about, like, I wonder if the subject matter isn't uncomfortable for primarily male reviewers um of the time oh yeah yeah so i mean there's no let me see if i really mean this when i say it there's no real relatable or appreciable male character in the whole movie Mm -hmm. they're all in some to some capacity um awful and sort of the root cause of the the terrible lives of like the women or at least like a contributing factor that caused the women to have like these awful things and awful psychological anyway so let's let's just talk about the movie Mm -hmm. um so it's a pretty simple premise honestly it's uh these sisters are assembled to kind of care for their um their sister who's dying of cervical cancer i think um, in the last days of her life. So they're back at the family home. They're taking turns caring for her, And the two sisters are pretty wildly different people. Um, there's the younger sister who has had an affair in her past and is, um, I don't know if like more carefree, but definitely more earthy, like more open and like a sexual being. Mm -hmm. Um, the other sister is colder, um, both to like her sister and the situation in general. Um, they have a, um, servant, I guess is the way you would put it, like a maid that's worked for the family for a long time. That's really close with the sister that's dying. And in a lot of ways is more of an actual like sibling to her than her own sisters are. Um, and so the movie's told through, um, the beginning part of the movie is basically leading up to the death of the one sister. Um, and it kind of, in a really, like, I, I think a very subtle and um, masterful way, like kind of presents, here's the dynamic of each of these people, both with each other and with this sister. 
and then once the sister dies um in one of the more horrifying death scenes ever like the screams of that woman as she the screams and the death rattle that they emulate like as she's passing away is incredibly difficult to watch um and lasts for what feels like a very long time um in a couple different spats it happens um and after she dies it's the idea of like well what's happening with the estate what are we doing with each other um the almond sister is trying to sort of reconcile with the other sister and kind of bring some measure of like peace but the other sister doesn't want to have any kind of like physical contact and you find out that um she mutilated her genitals at one point as a way to kind of drive her husband away um another another kind of hard to watch scene yes yeah where she 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 secretes not secretes like oozes out but hides and takes um a broken piece of glass from dinner and then proceeds to in as close a way as they could show without showing it like carve her genitals um and then rubs the blood across her face fucking horrifying yeah um and ultimately, the person that was the closest to the sister, the Anna, who's the maid, um, is the one that kind of gets left out, but is the most at peace with the passing of her um, because she did everything that she could. Um, everything is filmed in. So this is Sven Nykvist, who is um, Bergman's. I think only cinematographer or did, did the majority of Bergman's movies um brilliantly films this fucking movie um it's all saturated in reds um these rich like deep colors it's interesting because friend of the podcast orion um wellmaker asked me maybe about a month ago why do i like 70s movies so much like what is it about the 70s that i like Mm -hmm. and he said was it because you were born in the 70s and so like I think the real answer is because it's the last decade where it's this very specific kind of film stock mm-hmm. that just is so rich and saturated and yet still feels so raw. Like it's, there's a graininess to everything, like a texture to everything that you lose once you get into the eighties where there's more like digital assisted filming and eventually like digital filming in general but the, the film stock is cleaner you don't get as much like grain in the film when you watch it whereas like these movies are just like they're beautiful and the colors are beautiful in this movie and again like the the reds are lush and everything feels like warm and small and intimate and it really kind of draws you into this horrifying death that you have to like almost like be a part of like you're a party to mm-hmm. it um because of the way that the bergman films it and like this you know captures it um and just the performances in general like i think are are amazing in the sense of and sometimes i i think maybe one of the things with bergman is that he's 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 very I don't want to say Swedish, but he's very like Eastern European in the fact that he is not going to beat you over the head with something. He's going to let subtle conversation and action 
dictate how you feel about the movie and about its characters and watching these people interact with each other there's this really beautiful scene maybe like a third of the way through the movie where um the sister the dying sister is really starting to break down and is having a tough time like making it through the night and um anna the maid um basically like cradles the woman's head against her bosom and not in a like a sexual way but almost like a like a mother mary like in the you know whatever like the pieta or whatever like just cradling the head and like comforting her and trying to provide some measure of peace that nobody else will provide because they're so hung up with their own um neuroses and past or whatever they can't get past the idea that they're there to support their sister they got to make it about themselves um but yeah just it's not my favorite bergman movie um which is why i think it's number three because uh, typically i think bergman a bergman movie in a year would sort of just naturally move to number one <laughs> um but i think it's really again beautifully shot brilliantly directed the performances are great in it it's that slow build slow burn thing that bergman does by not giving you too much information at once but enough to form your own opinions Mm -hmm. and then kind of hitting you visually with things that are um you know like the the, at the end where she's envisioning the sister is like dead basically undead or whatever um i i I think that bergman i i wish that there was a I mean, I know that you love Arrow of the Wolf, and Arrow of the Wolf is not my favorite movie, but mm-hmm. I wish Bergman would have made like an actual horror movie at some point because I think that it's probably the closest he's... he gets, right? Yeah, Arrow of the Wolf. Arrow of the Wolf. Um, maybe uh, Virgin Spring. I mean, because that definitely true. Is, yeah, like yeah, imitated later in a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I think this has some really horrific parts to it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like you said, like, I mean, it's one of the more effective. uh, That sounds really cold and clinical, but it's like more than one of the more effective deaths I've ever seen in my entire life. I mean, um, like her screaming out, like, you know, uh, like, can't somebody help me? Like, is like, like works on this kind of like grand, like, almost like there's this grand greek lament like you know that's something you would read in like the old old stories um of like the symbol for how we're all like left alone in the end um before death and to hear and and to hear the cry and you know the, the that lament and the and like you said like the the, the death rattle yeah uh, is 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 horrifying to to watch um yeah it's tough and it, and he it's uncompromising because Bergman doesn't give you peace in that scene like he doesn't cut away he doesn't let you see anything else like he makes you watch that woman die um and it's 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 a pretty tough scene to watch it's yeah uh, yeah I mean it's a t- it's in some ways it's a tough movie to watch I mean, yeah because it's so claustrophobic um like you like I mean I'm assuming I I think one of the reasons why this is is a Bergman that's like not number one is, is in some ways, I think the film's a little inscrutable at times. I think it's a little, um, um, 
I think it's a little too vague maybe at times um, in in terms of where it's going with some things. Like some things I absolutely get. Like the claustrophobia of the house, um, it reminds me of a more recent um, uh, P.T. Anderson, the, the the great one that we liked from like four years ago. Um, Phantom Thread? Phantom Thread, yeah. Like the, the, the kind of claustrophobia of that movie a lot of times where it's like everything takes place inside the house very often um everything takes place in this damn house and we only get like a few glimpses of the outside one of them's a fantasy um at the end one is a memory um i don't think an actual real scene like outside of that takes place outside um uh at all like in the in the daylight so it's almost like the the daylight represents like being outside represents some sort of freedom that these women don't have um, so there's like certain things I get and I get like a lot of the stuff with like how these characters through oppression end up the way they are. Um, but like it's so like divergent among the different characters and their predicaments that it's like trying to get to something, some ultimate um, kind of meaning out of it, I think becomes difficult. And that's why I say it's a little inscrutable and where I think like you ultimately from his movies often take away um that larger kind of like universal truth i think this is a little harder to get to but yeah really fascinating movie um both in terms of character development the way it's done it's very old-fashioned it reminds me of like ibsen or strindberg um Mm. like uh in terms of like the way it like psychological um this is a very psychological story um in a very old-fashioned also freudian way i think um but uh if you i mean and i know you're not a big fan of like ibsen or schoenberg are you no i don't really have any opinion (laughs) um i don't think that's true at all um but um maybe that's a conversation for another day but uh yeah it's a really interesting film and i think i just want to say it takes massive balls to fade to red i right (laughs) Like, I don't know any other filmmaker that would, like, have that kind of, like, courage and confidence in themselves to fade to red. And do you, I just want to ask this and I'll I'll be done. Um, actually, I do have one more thing I want to mention about this movie that I think is uh, fantastic. But why do you think he fades to red? Hmm. I mean, because it's not the end, right? Like, maybe. I didn't know if it was, like, blood-related or what. Like, I have no idea. Like, I mean, I know the house has a lot of red in it. Like, especially in, like, the bedroom and stuff. But it's, like, um, I I, 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 I didn't put a lot of thought into it. But I said some. And I was, like, I, I, I have some ideas. But I don't know if any of them really work for me. Um, but it's a fascinating choice that he, like, fades to red in between scenes. Um it certainly, I think, adds something to the movie. Um, but the opening might be one of my favorite credits, credit scenes ever, because I knew nothing about this movie going into it. i never seen it. I didn't read anything about it. But the idea of like trying to figure out what the sound is, the sounds are over yeah. top of the credits and then figuring out like what the sound is through the visuals, like, um, uh, 
you know, uh, and and that sound design, like of the the ticking clocks and stuff like that, it, absolutely brilliant. Like uh, for just like opening credits with a black screen. Is it black screen or red screen? I can't remember. I think it's black screen. Um, with the credits is a is a really great opening for something so simple. Um, but yeah, another really enjoyable, sad, uh, obviously, but enjoyable movie to watch of his. Um, always impressed with him. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe I don't like it as much as you, which is weird because I, I definitely, I, I, I think this is a fantastic movie. I think it's definitely like, it's hard to watch anything Bergman does without realizing you're watching the work of somebody who really is like a master of cinema or whatever pretentious shit you want to say. <laughs> um, but I don't know, like I just maybe I don't really feel a personal connection to some of the stuff because I'm am much more much more into some of his other movies i think oh yeah right. absolutely this is this is low on the list but i still think it's a uh, i just think he's like that good yeah yeah <laughs> but even like his lesser things are um still really really high quality sure yeah i agree with that great movie again number yeah. three movie on the list of um well right when you look at the top two movies i mean yeah um so speaking of uh number two on your list is the godfather directed by francis ford coppola stars al pacino marlon brando james conn robert duvall talia shire diane keaton and john Cazale. has 97 percent from critics and 98 percent from audiences on rotten tomatoes so i don't know how much you need to tell us about this movie um but i guess a little bit and then uh why why it's on the list number two yeah i don't think we i don't think we need to discuss like plot or anything of this movie yeah. so i'm pretty sure that most people have seen the godfather um we talked about this offline a little bit i think over text maybe mm -hmm. so i loved the godfather from a very young age like and i remember renting godfather one and two um when i was a young teenager and watching them back to back over the course of a weekend yep um and just being completely in love with them and i i feel like i fell out of the, the godfather movies fell out of favor with me sometime in my 20s maybe to the point where when people would bring them up recently because i have a, a friend um who a couple years ago did a thing on facebook where he did his top 25 gangster movies or whatever mm -hmm. or mob movies and of course he had the godfather i think i think at number one and I remember being so like, maybe not disappointed, but like, oh, like what a, what a plebe, like putting this movie at number one. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I'm curious, what I I think that what caused me to stop really caring about The Godfather and Godfather Two, I I think it's The Sopranos. I think that because The Sopranos is the thing that is most recent and is most considered i think to be like the preeminent gangster representation of maybe the past like 25 years oh yeah that is sort of has caused us to underappreciate what inspired it you know right and we we've talked about this with goodfellas too because mm -hmm. i mean goodfellas is a fantastic movie but I, I think felt, certain... I felt, yeah i felt similarly at some point about good goodfellas as you're talking describing about godfather yeah 
that we kind of forget like how great these movies are because people just became way too obsessed i think with the idea of the sopranos and the greatness of the sopranos and not taking anything away from that show because both you and i watched it last year is that right mm-hmm. yeah it was last it? year yeah. mm-hmm. um and both were really impressed with the show in general and i'd mm-hmm. never even seen the last season of it in its yeah. entirety so i was impressed with that but mm-hmm. watching this movie now and you you texted me i'm not gonna lie to you i had no intention of watching this movie for the podcast because i felt like i know the godfather well enough that i can talk about it <laughs> uh-huh without having to spend three hours like watching this fucking uh-huh. movie and you texted me about how like how impressed you were with watching it again after having not seen it for such a long time and i said yeah. you know what like i started thinking about like the color and the way it's filmed and the performances and mm-hmm. i was thinking about you know the the wedding scene and um mm-hmm. what's his name um santino's death and hey the shit with michael's change as a character and stuff and i was like all right you know what i'm gonna watch it and man i was it was almost like watching it for the first time in some ways because i remembered it but i had forgotten like the order of things and how impactful some of um some of those scenes just really are so we talked about this with deliverance a little bit it is insane how much in this movie has influenced not just pop culture but culture right like the way that we talk about things the way that we speak Mm -hmm. you know there's so many lines of dialogue in this movie that have been pulled out and used numerous times in tv shows and movies and television and comedy and whatever Mm -hmm. you know like I'll make him an offer he can't refuse. You come to ask me this on the day of my daughter's wedding. Um, Sleeps with the fishes. Right. Um, So, yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, Leave the gun, take the cannoli. Right. Yeah. Like, there's, and there's, I I, I meant to write him down when I was watching it, but I got so invested in in the movie that I couldn't. Right. I wasn't even, like, looking at my phone or anything, which is crazy. Um, If the saddest thing about this movie is just thinking about coppola from like the late 80s and on just like i was thinking isn't that a part of it too it might Uh, be too that like the man that made jack like i just can't take it (laughs) right it's like you you i mean i think godfather 3 is an influence on like the lost reputation of 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 the of this movie and i think coppola the rest of coppola's career is also influences it as well but i i think you're right i think the sopranos overtaking like pop cultures look at the mob is is probably the number one um but i think uh i think that influences it well as you get deeper into the 90s is the is coppola and godfather 3 i'm gonna admit something i've never admitted to anybody before so mm-hmm. we'll just do it like on the podcast mm-hmm. i ain't never seen godfather 3 are you serious? Yeah, I've never watched it. Huh. It's had such a bad reputation that I never wanted to spoil Godfather 1 and 2. Like, I felt like somehow it would take away from um, my estimation of those movies and just so poorly received. And everyone I've ever talked to. Oh, OK. Says right. what a bad movie it is. So okay. I just I've never seen it. I've okay. never watched it. I've, I've seen 30 minutes of it, maybe. 
is I, there, there there's something in like a church anyway i don't i don't fucking know but i watched some point i watched it at some point so yeah that i i'm really interested in watching it at some point because um i have also not seen it since i was like i haven't seen this since i was 18 i probably haven't seen godfather 3 since i was like 15 um i'm really interested in seeing that as an adult again at some point just to like reassess it and see if it really is as bad as everybody was saying it was back then um because i thought it was bad but i might have been influenced by the times but um but yeah this movie i like i said i haven't seen it in over 20 20 years now so yeah when i was watching this movie i was just like like I was walking around the house, like going out, out, out back to smoke, coming back inside, I'd run into Brandy and I would just like be like pausing the movie and being like, oh my God, I can't, I, this, this scene is so damn incredible. Like I'm, I was just like marking out like the entire time I was yeah. like watching, same here, watching this. Um, the other thing too, and is, um, Mario Puzo's story really mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's one of those things where, and this is this is another thing that I had a problem with. The Sopranos made you glorify these terrible men as heroes, you know, and it's 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 kind of the Breaking Bad argument in a lot of ways too with Walter White. Is that what does it say about us as a society when we're rooting for the bad guy? And I think the thing that The Godfather does so well and what makes it so compelling is you're rooting for the good guy and the good guy becomes the bad guy Mm -hmm. and you're still rooting for him. And the way that it all comes together and just Michael, Michael's masterstroke of having all these things happen during, you know, his um, godson's christening it's just it, it's brilliant and it's it, it comes together so perfectly and everything builds to this like crescendo and you feel so vindicated for him because of the death of his his italian wife and the death of his father and sure it's all it's it does use that analogy you just made it's almost like when walter white blows up gus fring right um and then after the fact though walter white becomes a villain and i would argue here too that after this oh moment, yeah like you know but she, you know like uh michael corleone becomes the villain especially in the second one um but yeah like i mean you're right i mean like it makes you it invests you in his character um early on through his like slow kind of ultimately it's a descent i guess but it's like his slow coming to realize that i see it as him coming to realize that the american government that he served much like the very opening scene with the undertaker can't actually do the things that they should be doing and that his father's basically way of life was right all along um and that his father can't be protected because there's corrupt police and then he justifies it later by saying senators and you know governors kill people like just like his father did and like you know so it's like he he becomes disillusioned with um the government that he served and slowly like takes on like his father's viewpoint of the world um so it's just a fascinating journey like for a character not to be argumentative but i also have a different opinion of that aspect Mm -hmm. of it um i think that it's because vito corleone took this kid 
and let him be outside the life because he never wa- he didn't want this one to be stuck having to depend on the family business to be make a living. Right. He wanted him to be a governor, a senator. That's what he says, right? Mm-hmm. Right yeah. to go off, right? Yeah. It's the slap from the cop that turns Michael Corleone from yes a war hero gentleman pacifist immediately into a vindictive gangster and i think the thing isn't that it's the failure of whatever society or anything i think the thing is that it's genetic and that it's in him anyway and the first time that he's faced with the ability to make the good choice and walk away from it he immediately turns to I mean, we're both Italian, like that Italian temper thing, like (laughs) I am going to revenge this on everybody and anybody (laughs) and fuck them all, you know, and it's like he becomes like even worse than everybody else because he's not like accustomed to it. So it just like overwhelms his entire persona. Well, it's like it's funny because it's like you have you have uh, Sonny. Uh, who is this, like, you know, is the stereotypical, like, hot-headed, like, you know, Italian, like, I'm going to kill everybody, like, you know, um, but, and they laugh at Michael when he, like, right after the fact, I think the most important scene in that entire movie probably is that moment where they're all sitting around talking about how to deal with um, Salazzo, is that it? Salazzo. Salazzo and the the police captain and all that situation, and Michael is sitting there with that crossed leg, um, and you get the full shot of him sitting in the chair with the leg crossed, like you know, leaning back in the in the um, in the chair, like with his arms on the on the uh, arms of the chair, and then you get that classic Godfather pose. And he's already in his mind, even though they laugh at him when he makes the suggestion, he's already become the cold, calculating, bro, right, um, Godfather. And you're right; it, it has to do with the hit. I think the hit has more behind it than just just the italian piece of him although i don't deny that you're right about that whatsoever um i think there's i think there's more complexity there than than maybe just that but um but yes the hit is the thing that turns him um 100 um is that moment yeah it's it's, it's the first time that he gets talked down to because mm-hmm. of his family and his heritage and yes. this man puts his hands on him and it just becomes the most unforgivable sin like it's it's fantastic the character the, the character growth or devolve i don't know whatever like the the change from that point on is just yeah. fantastic and um and really like you look at the performances too you know um pacino and james khan and, and oh yeah uh, marlon brando and even abe vigoda yeah abe vigoda <laughs> and um fuck what's his name uh the guy that plays the concierge um oh uh robert duvall yeah robert duvall yeah um mm-hmm. just brilliant and again like so many scenes in this movie that are you know it's 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 the horse head in the bed it's oh, the Jesus, yeah fish wrapped in the bulletproof vest you know the mm-hmm. the gun slip behind the toilet and then him coming out and shooting um Salazzo and the police chief in the head and like killing him like one of the most one of the best scenes I've ever seen in my entire life I think on film is is that is the tension that builds during that scene in the in the restaurant yeah absolutely 
like when he's reaching when he goes to the bathroom and like is going to find the gun and he can't find it right away like the level of tension that builds right. up in you like you get you you get flop sweat just from how many times have i seen this movie when i was a teenager and i still like was just like oh oh my god like yeah. like why is it so high up like because you're like looking where is he reaching like you know is it um no it's 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 stellar man and and then it's like the fact that michael doesn't do like think about the screenwriting to that too they talk so much about how michael needs to do things right you gotta and, you gotta just let your hands fall to the side and drop the gun right fall. two 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 bullets each right and it's like he shoots like you know Salonso like once right and it's like um and then it's like and it's like he's supposed to come out firing um and what does he do he sits down and it's just like he doesn't do anything he's supposed to do and it's just another element of increasing that tension because you've yeah. already been told what he's supposed to do to do it the right way and it's fucking brilliant um brilliant screenwriting there um but yeah like everything about this movie was was just really great and the fact that it's like also created i think a visual language of its own for us to this day in terms of references back to it like you know i mean what great cinematography like and varied cinematography the wedding versus the internal like scenes inside the house versus the restaurant versus um sure. i mean the outdoor scene at the funeral like i mean and the difference between the outdoor scene with uh vito and the grandson right uh, another great scene there like i mean just iconic um yeah so much good stuff and definitely definitely worth watching again shit i want to go watch it again right now actually and crazily enough second most beautiful movie on this list <laughs> um all right i i see the fire um, number one on the list is Aguirre Wrath of God, directed by Warner Herzog. It stars Klaus Kinski, Roy Guerra, and Helena Rojo. It has 96% from critics, 91% from audiences. So we've talked about this movie before, but you want to just talk to us about why this is number one on your list. This is one of my top 20 movies of all time, I would say. Um, and again, we've talked about this at length, but the story of uh, an expedition into um, the Amazon through Peru, I guess, is where they are, um, by a group of Spaniards um, who are trying to find the city of gold um, and claim it for the king of Spain. Um, they're led by ostensibly, I don't know, he is like a count or something like that. Um, but really led by uh, Aguirre, who is this conniving, power-hungry, charismatic kind of warlord. Like this guy that's just bred to kill and control and um, eventually usurps power, um, gets his group lost further and further in the Amazon. Um, and eventually gets them all killed and ends up losing his mind. And um, so why is it on the list? I mean, one of the greatest performances, I think, of a great actor's career. 
and Klaus Kinski playing Aguirre. Just the level of crazy dedication that Herzog had, especially around this time of forcing his actors to basically live the scenarios that they were presenting within the movie he was making. Um, Like, you feel like you're in the middle of a jungle watching this movie. Like, you feel claustrophobic by the trees. You feel uncertain by, you know, what's off the bank of the river. Um, You're consistently shown how truly incompetent Aguirre is as a leader in the sense that he's always leading his people into the wrong decision or the wrong situation. And yet they're following them because they're also tempted by this idea of being princes and governors of the El Dorado city of gold. Um, That by the time that, you know, it's too late, like they can't go back, they can't get away from it. Um, And they're all sort of obsessed with their own greed of becoming, you know, like these important men. Yes. Um, And Aguirre's only obsession is just being powerful, like being the man that, doesn't even have to be the king or the prince or whatever he just needs to be the man behind the king or the prince mm-hmm. um but beautifully shot some of the most surreal visuals without falling into the realm of um being surrealistic like mm-hmm. they're surreal in the sense that you really have to they make you think about what you're seeing without being like overly pretentious or outright surrealistic, which mm-hmm. I think is 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 mm-hmm. brilliant the way that Herzog films it. Um, but again, just the lushness of the jungle, the power and the darkness of the river, um, the way that he counterbalances light with dark, like throughout the entire movie. Um his absolute adoration of Kinski's weird ass chiseled jaw face, like in the expressions that can make Mm -hmm. um, just all those things are amazing. And it, it really is. It's a compelling script. It doesn't have easy answers. Um, It definitely takes you on like a journey throughout it. Mm -hmm. Um, And doesn't, doesn't let the villain fully ever become a villain like there's always parts of him even at his most like machiavellian that are understandable and relatable um and i just that's the problem is he's almost too human maybe right (laughs) like he's not a scenery chewing like mega villain he's a guy that is using god and country to influence these people to do what he wants but ultimately what he's doing is just trying to get them all paid and get them to establish this sovereign nation where they can be rulers because that's what he wants to do. Yes. Really what he wants to do is he wants to fuck his daughter and be the king. Well, that's where he ends up. That's where he ends up. Um, Yeah. But you wonder, like, was that not the intention all along? It's just that... Well, it's interesting that you say that because as you were talking, I was thinking about, like, when you said about his chiseled face, I was thinking about how the one time he shoots him without the armor, really... Um, when you see the purple that he's wearing like underneath yeah. and he's like giving a like he shows his daughter that animal or whatever those monkey type things or whatever that they, yeah. they are um cappuccines i think yeah and he um 
it it feels like a a suitor um yes to some degree um like in the way that he's like acting and stuff like that so yeah i mean like unconsciously maybe um maybe consciously i don't know but at least at least unconsciously yes i think you're right maybe it was always the always the thing uh but yeah i i don't have a lot to say that i probably didn't say before only that i mean one of the reasons i love poetry and i love literature is um and the and the things that i love is probably has to do with this idea of like you know um kind of artist uncovering things that are universally true and this is a movie that i think holds a a a great number maybe one of the greatest number of maybe universal truths at least that speak to me um but many of them uncomfortable um and just a few of them the idea that man is taken when he's taken away from civilization or he verts to like violence and, and and seeking power um that yeah. man will know knowingly uh like seek ruin for that for a chance at that power that the moral will sin when circumstances require it that um a quest for power will revert to atrocities that man will bullshit himself into believing that he can control nature that nature always wins in the end it's a very poe like actually right. like look at the world um ultimately and uh the thing that haunts me probably about this movie the the image that actually haunts me the most after having watched it like four times in the past couple years is um is that horse being forced off the raft and then going to the shore and him shooting the the raft pulling away from the horse standing there on the shore there is something to me about that shot that to me almost like encapsulates the entire feeling about this movie in some ways um and the journey they go on what a brilliant damn shot Oh, among many brilliant shots, but that's it's all interesting. I have to say. It's interesting you say that. So my initial thought when I was coming up with the order for this list was to pair this movie with Deliverance because I think there's a huge amount of, and not just the idea of being on the river, but the idea of the hubris of thinking you can conquer a thing that you don't know just because you're a man and it's your manifest destiny, right? Mm-hmm. So to me, that's maybe like, the biggest theme of this movie is the idea of like that the failure of something like manifest destiny and the idea that Mm -hmm. you have a god-given right to conquer and a god-given right to force yourself into into a place right um to me the there's a shot early on where gary is kind of like holding court but also pretending not to hold court. Like he's pretending to defer to the guy that they've nominated to be right. prince or king or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, and Aguirre's got just like this lounging, like arms up, looking down his nose, kind of slouch with just jungle all around him. And he I, I know what you mean, yeah. has so much presence inside him. And it's, it's, it's the moment, I think, for me that you realize that this is a man that's concerned about nothing but his own success and edification and yeah, nothing else matters. And then yeah. like, there's so many things that come from that, you know, they lose all the people on the river because they get sucked to the other side and they, they have to leave them. And um, 
going into like the whatever you call it, like the cannibal village or whatever I mean, there's so many small things that come from the hubris of this man and then ultimately leads to the death of everyone that you know decided to follow him <coughs> in the first place and then there's fucking like monkeys yes swarming over the edge yeah. of that boat is or the raft is um uh, absolutely anyway yes. yeah fantastic movie um yeah. Yeah, I had Very, not seen I had not seen this before you had me watch it for the podcast. Uh whenever that was a while back, a couple years ago. And I've seen it four times since. It's something that is this and Stalker, which I had seen previously. These are the two like things that like through reevaluation or like, you know, like more thinking about like through the podcast that have that have cracked my top twenty five easily. Um, a top 25 movies of all time this movie is absolutely just a powerhouse yeah. of a movie it's a masterpiece yes yes yeah right up there with the greatest like the works of greatest like some of the greatest literature to me yes i agree yeah. but again it's it's in my top 20 films of all time i'm pretty yeah. sure so Oh, all right, is, so each of each of these movies, I think that we could have easily done like a return slot uh-huh. on, um, because there's so much that. to talk about. So, but at some point, you you can only go so far. But um, I think someday I would like to do a a podcast with all three of the Godfather movies where we talk about them. Um, That's not a bad idea. I mean, I was glad to watch the Godfather again. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it was. I didn't even think about like the composition of this list when I came up with the movies. I was just going down, going down the line, like to talk about like what had come out in that year. Um, super happy to have watched all these movies again. Really happy to have gained a better appreciation. I think of some movies that I may have dismissed just because I liked them when I was so young. Um, but yeah, I think that all I, I think all five of these movies are definitely worth watching. Um, especially the top three, I think really, I don't know, really just, there's a universal appeal to those three movies. I don't know. I don't know what I want to say. <laughs> anyway, it was a great list. It was really fun watching all of them. So yes, agreed. Um, no, it was, uh, I've told you offline. It's like, this is one of your, like, to me, like, like in terms of like pure quality it's like we you have some lists that are just killer lists and and this like ranks among them i think like um here so i really enjoyed watching them so we'll be back here in a couple weeks um with uh the top five films of 1982 in the meantime um everybody have a good thanksgiving and we'll see you soon deuces